And once again, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. There's a little muscle memory that has to be, you know, exercise and get past when you say happy Sunday, but every day is a good day, amen? You know that we are not uh, deserving of life at all. God is our creator, and the fact that we have this short span to live is a blessing, even if we didn't receive him as our savior. But praise the Lord that he not only gives us this life, he gives us the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ, so we have a lot to praise him for, amen? Now, as was mentioned, we are going a bit through a study of the book of Acts. And again, it's not uh, rigidly chronological, it's not dogmatically chapter by chapter, it's not exhaustive in that sense, but what we want to do each morning is pull out lessons from the first generation of believers that are applicable to this last generation of believers so we can be the people of God when we see Jesus face to face, amen? So, let me quickly review. Yesterday we looked at the idea of In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7, the two times where the term cut to the heart is used in the Bible, it's right there in the book of Acts. And cut to the heart was a representation of conviction. People heard a message and they understood it. They were convinced of the truth. Their hearts were touched and convicted by the truth, but convincing and convicting is still not converting unless we yield to that truth and choose to walk in it. Does everyone remember that? All right, good. So we don't have to do all of yesterday's again. But that's how the early church started. The apostle Peter got up and preached a message, a powerful, mighty message, a present truth, Bible-based, spirit-filled gospel presentation of Jesus Christ and his work on their behalf and how repentance was available for all. And the Bible says that they were cut to the heart and 3,000 were added to them that day. Now what we want to do this morning is pick up from there and go forward. But before we do any study of God's word, what's the very first thing we need to do? So please, if you would, bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this absolutely gorgeous morning. I want to thank you for giving us this life at all. And we want to thank you so much for the eternal life offered to each one of us in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know that we are yours twice over, once by creation and now by redemption. So Lord, help us to see that our lives are your life lived out. Bless us as we study your word today. Send your Holy Spirit to this place. Not just in a vague, nebulous way, but to each person here and those listening elsewhere. Help us to understand the message, be cut to the heart once again, and be converted to be more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, let's open our textbooks to Acts chapter 2. Like I said, we're going to pick up right where we left off. And in Acts chapter 2, there at the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that marvelous sermon, people were cut to the heart. And we record again, we come back to where it happens in chapter 2. We'll just start with verse 36 to give it a little bit of context, but we're going to go on beyond that. It says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, there's the convincing part, understand, be intellectually uh, agreeing with this, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they've been convinced They've been convicted, and now it says in verse 38, then Peter said to them, what's the word? 
Repent. What does repent mean? Turn around. Change. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. By the way, you and your children and all those who are afar off, that's us too. So this is applicable to our lives today. And look at the response in verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then, verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Right there in verse 41 is where we're going to pause for just a minute. We're going to linger here for a moment and break down what we see in verse 41. I believe there are at least two important lessons. I'm sure there are more than that, but two I want to highlight this morning that come from Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, the experience there. This simple passage brings us at least these two ideas. The first idea is that baptism is predicated on an understanding and reception of the word of God. Look again at verse 41. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. They didn't just hear his voice, they weren't just stirred, but they received the word itself. They understood the message he was preaching. They grasped the truth of it. They felt the burden, the conviction of it, and in response, they repented and therefore were baptized. So they heard the word, they were convicted by the word, they were converted and evidenced that with baptism. So clearly, baptism follows an understanding of the Word of God. It's not just an opinion. It's not just an inspiring, stirring thing. It's an understanding of the Word of God itself. Let's flesh this out a bit. Let's go back to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus, as he was concluding his work here on earth, ascending into the heavens, he gives what we know as the Great Commission. And let's go to verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Now, we're not to this point in our series yet, but later we're going to see that I, I find this fascinating. Christ says, All authority has been given me. I can do whatever I need to do. Therefore, you go. Do you catch that? I have the strength, I have the power, I have the ability, the authority to send you. Therefore, go. And go and do what, he says. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. This is our theme. Make us disciples, followers of Jesus. Of all nations, that's where they're from, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and look at the next word, teaching them to observe a few of the things I have commanded you. No, no, no. He says all the things. There should be a rich, deep understanding of God and his word in order for you to know who you're following and commit to him in baptism. Does that make sense? So Christ says, teach them. You make disciples by baptizing them after you've taught them. So there's a teaching and baptizing to make you a disciple. And that's exactly what we see lived out in Acts chapter 2. The people received the word, and as a result, they were convicted, they were converted, and they were baptized into the faith. Let's look at another example from the book of Acts this time. Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 tells us the story of the conversion and baptism 
by Philip of this Ethiopian. Now, let's go down, we can't all the way through, let's just start with verse 26 to give it a little bit of context. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go. Very much like the great commission we just said, therefore go. The angel says go. This time toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. By the way, if God tells you to go, what should you do? Go. Simple enough, but let's keep going. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Pause right there. Is this person a believer in God? Yes. Where is he coming from? Jerusalem. What was he doing there? Worshiping. Is he familiar with Judaism and, and, and the rites and ceremonies of the Hebrew faith? Yes. So he's not a brand new off the street guy. He's not an atheist. He's not an unbeliever in that sense. He just doesn't have the complete message yet, right? So he goes on, for verse 28, and what was he doing? He was reading. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? Now we know how the story ends. The man gets baptized in the end, yes? But notice what's important first. Do you understand the word of God so that when you make that commitment, you know what you're getting into? Do you understand what you're reading? And I love this, speaking of our Bible Reformation, Bible study Reformation, we're trying to get going in the Michigan Conference. Look what happens in verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Friends, there are people all over the world today who even claim to be Christians, who are worshiping God, who are looking at their Bibles, but they do not understand the present truth for this time. They, they don't even know that they want to know it yet. But there's things that aren't quite making sense, and when that understanding fills their mind and it comes together and it's sewn together in a beautiful, great controversy picture from Genesis to Revelation, and they see the work of Jesus in the sanctuary, they understand his soon coming, they understand the truth of the state of the dead, the, all of these things start to play, then they'll have a richer, deeper understanding, but they need someone to guide them. This man understood that there was stuff he didn't know and he needed help, and he said, how can I, verse 31, unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And he goes on to read what he was reading there, but let's go down to verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. Friends, we need church members who will open their mouth and speak about Jesus. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So he already had the scripture, he already had the, but what was the missing element in his theology? Jesus Christ. <laughs> he had all the spokes of the wheel, but he didn't have the axle holding it together, right? So he's like, I know these pieces are out there, but I still don't get it. Can you help me? And Philip preached Jesus to him. Now, verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being Baptized. Notice an understanding of the scripture, seeing Christ, the truth as it is in Jesus, then leads to baptism. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So we go back to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And again, these are the people who were, these are Jews who had been following. They're there for the day of Pentecost, which is the feast of the Lord. They understand all the spokes of the wheel, but they didn't have Jesus in the center. In fact, these were the very people who chanted, crucify him. But now they understand. Now they see Jesus, and now they're ready to become part of his body through baptism. Which brings us to our second point in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. I want you to look very closely and see that it's in your Bible as well. Again, let's read the text again, verse 41. Then, he, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Now look at the next phrase. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to, and my question is, to whom? Them. It does not say 3,000 souls were added to Jesus. Now, I know that sounds heretical. Of course, they were giving their lives to Christ, and they were joining Christ through baptism into his death and new life resurrection, right? So, of course, they were committing their lives to Jesus, but it doesn't say they were added to Jesus. It said they were added to whom? To them. Friends, you can't join Jesus without becoming a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. They were added to them. Baptism joins you not merely to the idea of Jesus in some mystical, personal experience, but by baptism you become a member of the body of Christ, which is the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul would speak about this frequently. In this well-known passage, he gives the analogy of the body to the church. Starting with verse 12, he says, For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is whom? Christ. So there is one Christ, amen? And then he has one body in which you become a part when you give your life to Jesus in baptism. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. Friends, there's no such thing as a Christian hermit. You can't be an island and still be part of the body of Christ. You are by extension sewn together, woven into the fabric of the church when you commit your life to Jesus Christ in baptism. We see all of this in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. These people received the word. They had an understanding of God's expectation from them, from the scripture. They committed their life to Christ, and boom, they're members of the body of Christ. They're part of the church. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. They became part of the church. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 2. At this point, we're just breaking it down verse by verse, but let's go to the very next verse. After they understand the word, after they get baptized, then watch what happens next. Acts chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 42 now. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking bread and in prayers. It does not say they, under, they came to the seminar, they understood the message, they got baptized, and then they left. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship. Catch this. After they had gladly received, as the Bible says, the present truth gospel of Christ and his work at the right hand of God in the heavenly sanctuary, and after they were baptized and joined the church, they stayed and kept studying. If you go over to Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul had some good things to say about these type of believers. Acts chapter 17. We'll start with verse 10. It says here in Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. By the way, I think this is an interesting thing. We're going to pick up, I'm laying seeds for other sermons we're going to have later in the week. But notice this. The brethren sent their pastor away. I'll just let that hang in the air, and we'll come back to that later. (laughs) Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. I've always wondered if the folks in Thessalonica ever got the chance to read the book of Acts. (laughs) They're like, hey. (laughs) But look why it is. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, And here's why. In that they received the word with all readiness, just like the people in Acts chapter 2, right? They received the word with all readiness and search the scriptures how often? Daily. Search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. To find out if what the preacher was saying was true to dig deeper into the message presented, to have a better foundation for their faith. They received the word, but they went home and studied it out for themselves. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. After they received the word, after they get baptized, they continued in the doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread and in prayers. They didn't just stay on the books on paper. They were there in person daily studying the word of God. So, by the way, notice what the very next verse says in Acts chapter 17, while we're still there, right? After we read that those were more fair-minded in verse 11 than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so, look at verse 12. Therefore, the word therefore means in light of the stuff we just read, this next thing I'm about to say is true. Does that make sense? So because they received the word and that they searched the scriptures daily, therefore, many of them did what? Believe. Their belief was rooted not only in hearing the message one time, but continuing to study it daily, therefore they believed. We talk about closing the back door sometimes. Friends, after you come to Jesus, after you understand the message, after you've been baptized, there's still more to do. You need to continue in the doctrine. You need to keep studying. Search the scriptures daily so that you can be rooted and grounded and have the therefore many of them the believed testimony. I would love for us to say therefore many of them believed instead of therefore many of them leaved. We need less leaving and more believing. Right? And that's only going to happen through an ongoing personal study of the Word of God. Can we talk like family this morning? I don't know what I was going to say if you said no. So, 
Well, one thing I've noticed in the Seventh-day Adventist church, this church that I love, is that we strongly uh, discourage any understanding of once saved, always saved, right? It's biblically untenable. It's spiritually dangerous to have this idea in your mind that once you're saved, you're good. No, no, no. We rail against once saved, always saved, as we rightfully should. Yet, at the same time, we often practice once learned, always learned. You'll hear people say, I came into the message in 84, and I'm still here. Friends, just still being here is the lowest bar we can possibly set. We should be growing in our standard. We should be deeper than we first would be. We should be sharing our faith. We should have a broader knowledge. We should be more firmly rooted in Christ. Mm. This superficial reading, this passive acceptance. I mean, I think of those dear folks, and I, maybe there's some here this morning who attended some Unlock Revelation meetings. Is there anyone here attended Unlock Revelation? Praise the Lord. By the way, I don't know if there's anyone here going on the fun run this morning or whatever it's called, but we're, we, we might run over a little bit. Is that okay? Okay. Thank you, one person. <laughs> but here's the thing. You, if you go to those meetings, right, you'll hear night after night, and we, at, at our location we did five nights a week, and then we added Sabbath the last two weeks. So we're doing six meetings a week. And one night you're going to hear, by the way, Jesus Christ is alive in the heavenly sanctuary in the 2300 days of Daniel chapter 8. And you're like, huh? What? And then while they're wrestling with that, by the way, you don't have a soul. <laughs> you're like, huh? How's that? Well, moving on. Next, you know, Jesus is coming in a way you didn't expect. There isn't a secret rapture. How's that? Next, hell doesn't burn forever. What? <laughs> and night after night, they're getting new ideas. Now, they might have heard one mess presentation on the state of the dead, or the 2300 days, or the 70 weeks, or whatever the thing that presented. And it was probably presented well, strongly from the word of God. But just hearing it one time doesn't make you own it, right? It doesn't permeate you. It doesn't become part of the fabric of who you are. So what happens if we take people who've heard all this new truth, and it's like, a, you know, you've heard the expression, I heard it in my meetings a lot. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose, Right? It's a lot of good material, but it can blow you up. You need, just, you need to take your time with it. You need to walk through it. Study it out for yourself. I fear that there's many seven Adventists who came into meetings and at the time said, that sounds good, that's true, I accept it, but haven't gone back to review and study it and drink it in and make it their own and couldn't defend their faith out of a paper bag. By the way, I also notice that there's no letter to the Bereans. Paul never had to write to first and second Bereans. You know, get, getting a letter from Paul wasn't necessarily good news. <laughs> oh, Galatians. Oh, you Corinthians, you know. But the Bereans, he said, oh, they're fine. They received the word. They didn't trust me at first, so they tested it. They're doing just fine. That's all they needed to have. I would love it if we had in our churches more individual members rooted in the truth of God's word from their own study, from their own daily walk with Christ. Once when preaching a wedding homily, this is a true story, I wanted to encourage these newlyweds here to live a life of ministry like 
Aquila and Priscilla from the book of Acts. But in my presentation, I accidentally encouraged them to live a life of ministry like Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) It was one of those couples from Acts, you know, Quill and Priscilla, and it just came out, and I didn't catch it at first, and what was scary is no one else caught it either. Worse than that, a few even said amen. (laughs) And it dawned on me, is it possible we could just slide in things? We don't know. We don't have a filter. Someone should have called me out and said, I think you mean the other couple. Friends, we need to have an understanding of God's word for ourselves that we can even test the messages we hear from the pulpit. Students of God's word. We used to be a people of the book. We need to go back to that. Popular as it may be today, you know, Jesus said go make disciples, didn't he? Popular as it may be today, the word discipline, or the word disciple, I'm sorry, is a noun. It's not a verb. I know some of my peers and colleagues get on me for being such a nitpicky guy about this. But no one has ever been discipled. Disciples are made disciples through discipline. That's the root of the word. My little theory is that we made up the word discipled because it sounds nicer than discipline. It's a little warmer, fuzzier, a little softer, right? But a disciple is not someone who has been disciplined, whatever, I mean discipled, whatever. The true discipleship requires effort. It requires struggle. It takes putting things into practice. It takes what we used to call discipline. Philippians chapter 2. Let's go on our scriptures here. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Look what the Apostle Paul writes to these dear folks. Notice they have a good close relationship. It's very sweet. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So notice here, by the way, this is a theme. I'm going to keep coming to it. The Apostle Paul would raise up believers and he would leave. He would check on them, see how they're doing, but he would encourage their walk with Christ even in his absence, right? He said, don't depend on me. You should have your own root in Christ. And he says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's like you received the message, you had me as your pastor, now I'm going on to do other things, but you keep, and he used the phrase, working it out. And then he explains, he could say, oh, that's legalism, that's works righteousness. No, look at verse 13. For it is God who works, where? In you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So notice what God works in you, you're supposed to work out. What God works in, you work out. So what God pours in your life, the pardon that he offers, the power that he gives you, now you take that and apply those merits. You apply that pardon. You apply that power in your life with fear and trembling. Work it out, he says. Sister White, in the book Christian Education, page 122, listen to this carefully. Let no one suppose that conversion is the beginning and end of the Christian life. There is a science of Christianity that must be mastered. There is to be growth in grace. 
that a consistent progress, uh, there is consistent progress and improvement. The mind is to be disciplined, trained, educated, for the child of God is to do service for God in ways that are not natural or in harmony with inborn inclination. Friends, the Christian life is quite different than a life without Christ. The natural man does not come by the spiritual man's interests on its own. It takes time. It takes struggle. It takes patience. It takes work. And again, that's not to earn your salvation, but the salvation that Jesus gives you should be worked out in your own life. Salvation, friends, is more than a mere transaction to get you into heaven. It is an entire character transformation to fit you into heaven. And that's a massive distinction that we must keep in mind. Look at the process language that the apostles and gospel writers use to talk about this salvation that we are to experience. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Starting with verse 1, this is one of those passages that they put a scripture song to and now I can't read it without having a tune come in my mind. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now look at the practical application. Beloved, now we are children of God. Can someone say amen? Amen. Notice that we are present tense children of God. We are called his. We are reckoned as his. We are on paper in the books of heaven, citizens of his kingdom. Amen? Beloved, now we are children of God. But then he adds, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Do you catch that? Apparently you can be a child of God and still growing to become more like him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's still growth to come. But he says, but we know this, that when he is revealed, that's a reference to the second coming, right? When he is revealed, we shall be in what condition? Like him. Notice very clearly, we don't have time to have this sermon, but it does not say, when he is revealed, we shall be made like him. Friends, that change, that transformation of character does not occur at the second coming. It is preparation for the second coming. Through a daily, ongoing, growing experience with Jesus Christ and an understanding of his word. So now we can be called the children of God and still not know what the end of us looks like. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And here's the very uh, uh, inescapable logic of how we know it's going to work. For we shall see him as he is. You know, someday Jesus is actually coming back. And he's not going to come in the, you know, in the humble garb with veiled, you know, he's going to come with all the angels and all the glory. Shwa! And I don't want to be part of that generation that merely lives to the second coming, friends. I want to live through the second coming. I want to see the face of Jesus and not ask for the rocks and mountains to cry. I want to say, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him and he will save us. And notice what the the practical counsel is as we continue. 
Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him, which I hope it's everyone in this room, everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself. To what extent? Just as he is pure. The goal of the Christian life is not to receive a transaction, to get your ticket into heaven. The goal is to become more like Jesus so we'll fit into heaven. It's a growth process. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 famously speaks about this in verse 18. Where the Apostle Paul talks about observing Christ and beholding him. It says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. By the way, we don't look up to heaven and see Jesus face to face, but we do see Jesus in his word, do we not? When we study the life of Christ, when we understand the teachings of Christ, when we study the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're seeing the character of God and the person of Jesus. And he says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So it's not, in, it's not direct, but it's indirect through his word. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, what's the next word? Transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So as we study the word of God, as we continue in that Christian walk, we're, be, we're, we're called and accounted his right now, amen? But then we're growing each day to become more like him so we'll have both the title for heaven and the fitness for heaven. Friends, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus. And Christ-likeness takes time and effort. God will give you the strength, but he wants you to walk in that strength. Jesus said this simple sentence in Luke chapter 6, speaking to his disciples. Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Right? Training in the Christian life is to make us more and more like our teacher, Jesus. And that's what a disciple is. Someone who has been trained and grown to be like Jesus. So we think of those early believers in the book of Acts. Not only did they hear a powerful sermon and have a mountaintop experience, not only were they converted and baptized, but then they continued steadfastly in the doctrine and in fellowship was the next thing. And in fellowship with each other. Now there are some essential habits that every Christian must develop to be more like Jesus. One of the habits is alluded to by the experience of new believers in Acts chapter 2, This is something that our brother Mark and Jim Howard have aptly called the ministry of attendance. They continued steadfastly in the doctrine, not only in their own personal study, but also, what's the next word? And in fellowship. Become more like Jesus. By the way, do you know that showing up to church is becoming more like Jesus? You don't believe me. Let's go to Luke. (laughs) Luke chapter 4. I want you to see it directly from the Bible. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 16. Jesus just finished his hand-to-hand combat with the devil. He comes back in, just beginning his public ministry, and he goes in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his what? 
custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. If we're going to become like Jesus, we better have a custom of going to church every Sabbath. By the way, it doesn't just say he went to church, went to synagogue every Sabbath. It says he also stood up to read. He participated in the service. He wasn't just a watcher, he was a worker from his youth. Now, as we go on, you know, Jesus had quite a message to say that day. He had been to that church over and over and over, but this day was special. This day was different. He was announcing his Messiahship to his church family, and he takes the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he reads to them from chapter 61, and, and basically says, this is me. And it sounded good for a minute, and then somebody said, wait a minute, isn't that Joseph's son? <laughs> and if you go to the end of the story, they close the service by taking Jesus by force out of the synagogue up a hill to throw him off a cliff. But you know what he did the next Sabbath? He went to synagogue again. You know why? Because <laughs> that's what his custom was. I don't care how bad you've ever had it at church. If somebody said something mean or looked bad at you or didn't like your outfit or something, you never had it as bad as Jesus. No one has ever, and if they have, you tell the conference officers now. If they try to take you out and kill you, but that didn't stop Jesus, it didn't hurt his feelings, he went back. Because that's just what you do. Friends, the Sabbath is not just a day of personal rest, but it's a holy convocation of the believers of God. There's something called the ministry of attendance. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, and we see it in the lives of these new believers. In Acts chapter 2, after they receive the word of God, after they are baptized, they continue daily and it goes on in verse 46 to describe again. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. By the way, they went to the temple on days other than the Sabbath. Is it okay to go to church when it's not Sabbath morning? Yes. Are there things that go on in your local church that you need to be a part of besides the worship service each week? Yes. Prayer meeting. I knew I'd get, and the morning devotion people are prayer meeting people. It's the people out there listening on live, online that I hope are taking a listen now. Right. Prayer meeting, outreach, church fellowship, socials, board meetings, business meetings. You are a member of the body of Christ and should be at the stuff the church does. Notice here in Acts chapter 2, these people gather together at church and in homes, Right? Notice what it says in verse 46. So, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what was the result? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So that 3,000 added more through their own experience and built on the work of Pentecost. They just kept going to church. They kept studying together. They kept socializing, fellowshipping, lifting each other up. They were a community of believers, and it was a beautiful thing. Worship, study, fellowship, evangelism, ongoing prayer for and with each other is critical, not merely to your own spiritual life, but more importantly to the life of your brothers and sisters to whom we are bound by the strongest ties. That is faith and love, Jesus Christ. Attendance demonstrates what you value. It's called voting with your feet, right? 
the free market concept that we all understand inherently. The stuff you show up to is the stuff you actually like. What do you do just because the born-again you wants to be where the word of God is preached? What things, think about it in your local church, and there's probably many local churches represented here this morning, but what things, what activities, what events, whatever, would be better if more people attended? I didn't say more people let out or participated or talked up front, or did, but just old-fashioned showed up. <laughs> I, I'm looking back on my own experience in 15, 16, so whatever long I've been a pastor, and I can't think of one event that I look back and said, you know the only problem with that event? Too many people came. <laughs> you know the real problem we have in our church? Over-attendance. Ugh. Right? No one ever says that. What things might you might, you might nat, not naturally, the natural man not might want to do, but in your new born-again converted state, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you want to be around the people of God. What things would be better with your presence there? You ever have that thing where you, you I mean, you think about these unlock revelation meetings, what made it so great was there was a lot of people in the room. If you have a hall that holds 313 show up, it might be the same presentation, but it changes the dynamic just being there to see it. Particle physics is called the Heisenberg theory, the Heisenberg principle. By observing a thing, you change the thing. The mere fact that you're in the room changes the thing itself. Have you ever noticed when there's a hundred people there and everyone's excited, there's an atmosphere, there's a courage, there's a warmth that comes from each other that you don't get from empty chairs? Probably no better time to talk about that. But it's the same thing with everything we do in the local church. Board meetings, business meetings, work bees, school events, church social, Sabbath school, evangelistic campaigns, outreach activities, and of course the unsung martyr of the modern church, the prayer meeting, would take on new life if our members would just be there. Listen to this statement from Pastoral Ministry, page 183. A prayer meeting will always tell the true interest of the church members in spiritual and eternal things. The prayer meeting is as the pulse to the body. It denotes the true spiritual condition of the church. A lifeless, backslidden church has no relish for the prayer meetings. I didn't say it. But someone with better authority did. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10, the quintessential attendance text. And I'm not going to take all of our time on the ministry of attendance here, but this is a thing you need to know. As believers in Jesus Christ, you have an obligation not only to your own spiritual life, but also to the life of those around you to be in attendance at the functions of the church. Hebrews chapter 10, like I said, the quintessential attendance text. Starting with verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Faithful. We hold fast because he's faithful. Then it says in verse 24, and let us consider whom? One another. In order to stir up love and good works. 
You know, have you ever noticed something that congeals and separates like peanut butter? The oil comes on top and the dense part, and you have to stir it up, and it takes a little work, but then it starts to move, and it all comes together. That's what he's talking about. Stir up. The church is like that sometimes. We need each other. Like two pieces of wood helps the fire burn better, right? It, it's helpful to have each other there. goes on. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, the closer we get to Jesus Christ coming, the closer we should get to each other. There's a reason, Sister White would say, press together, press together. Satan goes around like a roaring lion, and we need the warmth and courage that comes from each other's faithfulness. As God's last day remnant movement, we see the day approaching. Now, just like attendance at Sabbath school, church, and prayer meeting, many other areas of your life, I mean, attendance at church stuff is just one item that we see evidence there in the new believers in the book of Acts. But there's so many more we could cover. And these areas, these new challenges, these, this growth in Christ requires some pointed, purposeful, and sometimes painful acclamation. When you walk the high road of Christ, sometimes it takes adjustment. In fact, I guarantee every time it takes adjustment. Going from the old man to the new man can sometimes cut. Let's think about this. Let's talk about financially. You know, things get real when we talk about the pocketbook. It's all fun and games till we talk about money. But what does Malachi say to the believers? Will you rob God? Yet you have robbed me. You say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, in our society, in the Western world, in America today, it's not uncommon at all for people to live on 100% of their paycheck. In fact, it's not uncommon for people to live on 105% of their paycheck, or 110, right? They're not just staying neutral, they're actually going backwards. And here the Lord comes, shakes up your life, and says, now, 10% is for me first. Off the gross, not off the net, not the 23 cents you have left over. No, no, no. First, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Try me in this. Friends, that is an act of cutting faith to take out your pocketbook and write out that tithe check. And you notice, notice the text doesn't just say tithe. It says tithes and what? Offerings. Tithe is the minimum. He said, now, what do you want to do beyond? It's an act of faith. It's working out that salvation in the very life. A walk with Christ touches your wallet. And he says, try me in this. But there's too much theory sometimes in our presentations. We need practical application. Let's think about some other ways. How about time? Besides Sabbath keeping and all the other church commitments we've already talked about, right? We mustn't neglect the personal time it takes to maintain that relationship with Jesus Christ. Personal devotions, family worship with your children. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. The apostle writes of the importance of this 
dedication to the word and personal stuff. Notice what it says here in verse 2 of 1 Peter 2. As newborn babes, and again, this is, let's not Nicodemus this up. He's clearly talking about spiritual babies, not actual babies, right? As newborn spiritual babes, new life in Christ, desire the pure milk of the what? Of the word that you may, what? Grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, if you've come to a a commitment to him, the only way you're going to be fed and grow is if you continue in that word. Committed daily. And there's a reason it's called daily devotions. You have to be devoted to it. Friends, if you make a commitment to spend time with Jesus Christ, Satan will try to stop it. He's going to make your night before go late and your morning coming too early. He's going to make the kids louder and more misbehaved than ever before. He's going to make work tough. He's going to make your relationships. He's going to do whatever it takes to rattle your schedule, to frustrate you, to exhaust you so that you can't have that devotional time. But we need a generation of believers who, like Daniel, will purpose in their heart. And that's the end of the discussion. The decision is made. I'm going forward. Wouldn't Daniel's story have been a lot less inspiring if he purposed in his heart, but then he showed up and said, well, okay, I'll just eat a little bit. No, he didn't compromise, and that's what makes it extraordinary. A small act of commitment executed daily is inspiring, and it will change your life. Speaking of which, let's talk about food. It's like that's right up there next to the wallet. (laughs) Do you realize that the very first instruction the Bible records God giving to mankind is about food? It's the very first thing. I don't know why we glaze over that. We always go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, let man man in our image, right, and all this beautiful. Then we hop to chapter 2. But right after that, he gives them the menu. He tells them how to fuel the body he just made. The very first instruction, verse 29 of Genesis 1. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit uh, yields seed to you, it shall be for food. We should think about the things that we eat if we want to have a good, solid connection with Jesus Christ. I love this one. Proverbs 23, one of my favorite passages when it comes to this particular topic. Proverbs chapter 23. Here the wise man writes about this uh, uh, diet concern. And he says here, now let me give a little context to this. There were only so many people in the ancient world who could eat whatever they want whenever they wanted, right? The common people, the, 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 the folks out in the field, the, the every day, the, the middle class, if you were, didn't eat like kings. Only the king could have whatever he wanted at any time, any time. But now, all of us can do the same thing. If we want any kind of food, we're no more than five minutes away from it and five dollars away from it, right? That's it. You can go and then go back again and eat it again. I want this deep fried. I want that. I want that. I want that. And you can have it. And that's a danger to have that much access. Look at the prophet, not prophet, uh, Proverbs, I'm sorry, chapter 23, verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Look at verse 2. And put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Mm. 
sounds a lot like Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, right? If your eyes see something, pluck it out. If your right hand, cut it off. If you're tempted to go, put a knife to your throat. Friends, this is discipline. <laughs> it's effort. I don't know where we've come up with the concept that once you get baptized, you join Christ and everything's just going to flow along swimmingly and naturally. No, it's not. That old man is still trying to raise himself up and there's got to struggle. But Christ has given you the strength to overcome. The victory is assured if we step out in faith. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9, page 153 and 154. Those who have received instruction regarding the evils of the use of flesh foods, tea and coffee, and rich and unhealthful food preparations, and who are determined to make a covenant with God by sacrifice, will not continue to indulge their appetite for food they know to be unhealthful. God demands. Mm. Oh, if it only said suggests. Don't you ever wish it just said recommends? God demands that the appetite be cleansed and that self-denial be practiced in regard to those things which are not good. This is a work that will have to be done before his people can stand before him a perfected people. Notice he doesn't say this is a choice that you'll have to make or this is a hope you have to, or a, 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 a thing you have to aspire to and not in the back of your mind really expect not to attain. No, no. This is a work, and it's true. I can testify in my own life on this. Now, I praise the Lord. I was growing up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. I never had to give up crab. It was never on the plate to start with. It was never even an option. I never even thought that that was ever food. I thought they were animals. Come to find out, they were supper for some people. I didn't know that. No. But there were still, you, did you know you can be a vegetarian and still be unhealthful? Oh, it sounds like we got some testimonies in the room. <laughs> be like, mm-hmm. You know, I... I went through a phase in my life, I was a vegetarian, but you can be a vegetarian and eat deep fried cheese sticks with ranch sauce and have a Dr. Pepper and you still haven't eaten meat. But it's hardly, you know, the health message, right? I've met vegetarians who don't eat vegetables. <laughs> it's all pasta and cheese. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> right? There's got to be a depth to this, right? There's got to be a holistic nature to it, right? And think about the radical departure. When somebody comes to the Lord, not only do they love Jesus, but now they're going to put the principles of his word to work in their life, and it's going to hit their pocketbook. It's going to hit their calendar. It's going to hit their pantry. You don't go from pork chops to carrot sticks overnight on a whim. That's effort. You can't go from alcohol and cigarettes and Mountain Dew and takes discipline. It's a struggle. Let's talk about clothing while we're already here. <laughs> An adornment. We're going to gather up all the things we never talk about anymore and put them into one sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, a life of fidelity to Christ includes every corner of your life. Like we mentioned, your pantry, your bank account, your Google calendar, and even your clothes closet. What was the example of Jesus Christ when it came to outward beauty? Isaiah 53, 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now let me be clear. Christ did not go out of his way to be intentionally ugly. 
He didn't try to be, as Mrs. White would say, a gazing stock with his peculiar dress. It wasn't like that. But he wasn't seeking for the outward acclamation. He wanted people to see the inward character of God. Thus the Apostle Paul counsels us in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be where? In you that was also in Christ Jesus. We should have the same attitude when it comes to our adornment. Who made himself of no reputation. He wasn't trying to be famous. He wasn't trying to be cool. He wasn't trying to be popular. He was trying to be faithful. Who made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. One evidence, and let me be clear, I'm not saying the evidence, I'm saying one evidence of genuine conversion is simplicity, economy, and modesty in our apparel. You see it over and over in the Bible whenever people were having a revival and reformation experience, the outward adornings came off. Genesis 35, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under Tebrinth tree, which was by Shechem. In Exodus chapter 33, after the golden calf experience, so the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And many versions bring out the truth of this statement that it's not only they did it for the day, but they did it for the rest of their sojourn from then on. Thus we read the New Testament counsel, 1 Peter chapter 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold and putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. God wants his people to be beautiful and adorned, but adorned in the simplicity and holiness of his beautiful character. And if time would permit, we just don't have it today. If time would permit, we could go on to touch on other areas of our lives that are affected by a daily walk with Christ. And it necessitates pointed change, purposeful decision change, entertainment, language, relationships, temperament. And by the way, I'll be in serious trouble with my colleagues and peers and friends in this Michigan conference if I don't point out that a beautiful discipleship resource has been developed by the Michigan Conference's Training Center Church Committee. It's called the Discipleship Handbook. How many people have ever heard of that book? Amen. Now, how many of you have read the book? Amen. Good on you. Get your friends to do the same. Encourage your pastor. Use it for prayer meeting or small group study. Use it in your own life, in your home or something. But there are these beautiful principles are so well articulated in that work. I want to encourage you to make that a part of your own life and then your outreach, especially we have new believers. Help them. Help them be disciplined to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Help them to have that daily walk. Help them to understand what a devotional life is like and what attendance in the church and being part of the body of Christ is all about and how they can be part and parcel of the work of God on this earth. I encourage you. Last week, the Seventh-day Adventist Church lost a spiritual giant, a hero of the faith in Elder C.D. Brooks. He was one of the remnant's most prolific and faithful evangelists, and he's now sleeping in Jesus. I knew he had been ill for some time, uh, but I still cried when I heard the news. 
And I went back and I re-listened to one of his most, one of his innumerable, powerful messages. And this one was entitled, I Want My Church Back. And speaking to fellow pastors and evangelists, he appealed to them saying these words, young and old need the discipline of the Word of God. When people feel like they can do what they please, then the church loses its premium value. But feel-goodism is pervading our congregations, creeping in, and our churches and our schools are floundering. We fall, we, I'm sorry, we fail our people when we water down and compromise and undermine and repudiate the message God has given us to bear and to live. Brothers and sisters, the world tells you to follow your heart and be yourself. But God's word says the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Nowhere does the Bible tell you to be yourself. Sorry, that's not the punchline of today's message. I'm saying don't go be yourself. Be better than yourself. Be the self that only Jesus Christ and his word can make you. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, and what does the word beseech mean? It means beg, plead, urge, exhort, I appeal to you, he says, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. James would say it this way, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Friends, don't let camp meeting be that experience. Will you hear a message? You're convinced, you're convicted, but you don't put the change into your life by Christ's power. Friends, I don't want you to stop at convincing or convicting. We want converting power in our churches. And that only comes from Jesus Christ, from his word, and from a daily walk with him. The apostolic believers didn't settle for merely receiving a message. Through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, they wove the message into the tapestry of their daily experience. The deepest blessings God has to offer come not from a mere hearing of the word, but a doing of the word by the grace of Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, very simple appeal, two questions. Number one, has today's presentation been clear? Did it make sense? Praise God for that. Now my second question. I don't want you to be mere hearers of the word. How many of you today want to make a commitment to say, Lord, start working out in me the very principles of your word in a daily basis? How about this? Can we stand together as we pray? Let's make that commitment this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day that you've given us. We're not promised the next, and we can't do anything about the last one, but this day is the day that the Lord God has made. So Lord, let us be hearers of the word. Let us look at your word. Help us to understand it and be convinced and convicted. But Lord, let it not end there. Give us genuine conversion. Change us into the people you want us to be. Lord, this is not works righteousness, but it is a righteousness that works. We want not only the pardon of Christ, we want his power in our lives. Lord, in every aspect of our daily experience, let your word be the abiding principle.
let us learn of you and grow to be like you so that when we see you soon and very soon, not one here will be missing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.